0: Welcome back to The Last Symptom Podcast. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator of The Last Symptom and your host. I created The Last Symptom after seven years of ridding myself of borderline personality disorder and realizing through that experience all of the misinformation, outright lies, and misdirection out there that exists and that others would face which would prevent them from ever ridding themselves of their own emotional disorders such as borderline personality disorder authentically I just mentioned misinformation outright lies and misdirection what's an example of that well as just one example consider that when I just mentioned Emotional disorders, I had to specify for you that borderline personality disorder is this. It is an emotional disorder. Now, why do you reckon I I have to do that? Because nobody knows borderline personality disorder is an emotional disorder. Thanks to all of the authoritative voices out there lying to you, you don't even know the basic nature of what borderline personality disorder is. No, you've been told it's a personality disorder, haven't you? I see it all the time on the internet. People asking about personality disorders. They don't even know what that is because it's not a thing. But, because of the misinformation the outright lies, the misdirection. People believe it's a personality disorder or a mental health issue, right? It's not a personality disorder because the fundamental underlying problem has nothing to do with personality. Personality is not the thing causing anything. That's a symptom of the fundamental underlying problem, issues with personality, but it's not the cause of anything. It's not the underlying issue. Can you imagine developing a brain tumor and the doctors describing it as a headache problem? Oh, this feller's in serious trouble. He, ha- he has a headache disorder why would the headaches fundamentally define what you're dealing with? They're merely a symptom of the problem. The truth is that he has a tumor problem not a headache problem. The tumor is the fundamental start and end of the symptoms isn't it? The tumor is the fundamental nature of what the person is dealing with and the headaches are are a byproduct of that so it's not a headache problem it's a tumor problem so anyway i think that's quite telling that when i talk about the misinformation from the professional community and society at large i can't even get through one sentence not even one sentence without running into that misinformation and having my approach to telling you the truth affected in other words i have to exit and explain to you things that you should already know because it should it's the basics it's the very basics of the issues we talk about here but no even the basics have been adulterated by the professional community as a group I'm not picking on every individual therapist or psychologist out there, but as a group uh, certainly, and society by and large see, all that garbage is stuff that I have to stop and go into detail about before we can even have a fluid conversation Unindoctrination takes a lot of effort and time that I would not otherwise have to do if the people in positions of authority who society points to and says they've got the answers were competent enough to tell you the truth but unfortunately that community as a group is not competent. Today's topic is going to be about reputation, your reputation, my reputation, your parents reputations and so forth. How much do reputations matter? Maybe if you grew up in a similar culture as myself, you were raised hearing that your reputation is everything. But is this true? Is this the healthy way to view things? We're going to talk about that. But first I want to tell you a little story about an old man on a game show back in 1956 and before I tell you about him I want to tell you about thelastsymptom.com thelastsymptom.com is my website and the reason it's so important is because all my work is based there please take advantage of the free resources I offer at thelastsymptom.com which includes, but is not limited to, this weekly podcast. The free resources I offer at thelastsymptom.com vastly outweigh the paid services that I offer, but it's the paid resources and donations that folks take advantage of through thelastsymptom.com that supports my ability to offer any free resources at all, So if you are so inclined to donate to support my work, I deeply appreciate it. The paid resources I offer are one-on-one phone calls and video calls with me. And most importantly, the Last Symptom Fundamentals Course, which is a two-week intensive program hosted by yours truly, which is pre-recorded, is a video presentation. It works with your personal schedule, no matter what your schedule is like. People's lives have already been changed by this course. People who have gone their whole lives in therapy and trying other programs. It's designed for anybody who's interested in authentically recovering from emotional disorders. What's just one example of an emotional disorder? Borderline personality disorder, right? We just finished talking about that so if you want to rid yourself of borderline personality disorder for real and permanently the last symptom fundamentals course is for you it's also for anybody who has any other emotional disorder are you codependent do you have narcissistic personality disorder those are also emotional disorders keep in mind authentic recovery depends on each individual So, the program will not do anything for you that you are not willing to do for yourself. Its success depends entirely on your motivations being sincere and on you being truly ready and receptive. If your motives are sincere and you are ready in your life, this program will help you rid yourself of borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder and any other emotional disorder for real if you are like the person who wants to have six-pack abs but only because your girlfriend will break up with you if you don't the last symptom fundamentals course is not for you i've seen people go through the course and come out on the other side not even a smidgen different than when they started because their reasons for taking it were never genuine to begin with Fortunately, they are the exception. Most people who have taken the course come out of it set on a different path entirely and experience benefits before the course has even ended. That's true. They are real people. And they would tell you this themselves, and they have in various episodes of this show. All right. Moving on. The story about the old man on the game show... In 1956 the name of the game show was I've got a secret and on this show guests would come on and contestants would ask the person questions to try to determine what secret or special experience this person had had on February 8 1956 mr. Samuel J. Seymour was the guest. He was 96 years old. He was born on March 28, 1860. Can you imagine that? When Mr. Seymour was called out and hobbled out onto the stage, the live audience and the television audience at home noticed pretty quickly that his right eye was beat up and bandaged and swollen all over creation. He looked like he had just been in a bar fight and lost. The host explained that Mr. Seymour had fallen while at his hotel the night before and had really suffered some serious bumps and bruises. The organizers of the show had insisted that they cancel his appearance, but Mr. Seymour insisted that the show go on, and the next day they recorded the game show with him. They just, they just don't make them like that anymore, do they, folks? Men nowadays are in a sorry-sorry state. Not all of them, but I think real men are becoming uh, the exception rather than the rule. For example, there's no excuse ever for a straight man to say the word, yummy. Or to spend more time in the mirror than his girlfriend. Or to complain about his extra-skinny latte not having enough splendors. <clears throat> Aha! See there, I tricked ya. Real men don't drink lattes. Back to hardcore, roughneck, ninety-six-year-old Mr. Seymour. He shows up on this game show on national television, hobbling about with a cane, with an eye swollen, completely shut, and bandaged. And the contestants start to question him. And it's not too long before a feeling of great respect fills the room because people begin to realize that they've got somebody really remarkable here. Given the time Mr. Seymour was born and his age during this show, 96, have you guessed yet why he was such a special guest? Well, the game show first learned about Mr. Seymour through an article written about him in the American Weekly and it was titled I Saw Lincoln Shot Mr. Seymour was accompanied to Ford's Theater by his nurse Sarah Cook and by Miss Goldsboro the wife of his father's employer he was only five years old at the time five years old think about yourself At five years old, your perceptions of the world, your fears, your insecurities, the people you looked to to keep you safe and these sorts of things, the way you interpreted uh, events around you, that now, as an older person, you look back and and you realize that uh, you were interpreting through a lens of inexperience. Here are some excerpts from the American Weekly article. Miss Goldsboro pointed directly across the theater to a colorfully draped box. See those flags, Sammy? She asked. That's where President Lincoln will sit. When he finally did come in, she lifted me up high so I could see. He was a tall, stern-looking man. I guess I just thought he looked stern because of his whiskers, because he was smiling and waving to the crowd. When everyone sat down again and the actors started moving and talking, I began to get over the scared feeling I had had ever since we arrived in Washington, but that was something I never should have done. All of a sudden, a shot rang out, a shot that always will be remembered, and someone in the president's box screamed. I saw Lincoln slumped forward in his seat. People started milling around, and I thought there'd been another accident when one man seemed to tumble over the balcony rail and land on the stage. Hurry, hurry, let's go help the poor man who fell down, I begged. But by that time, John Wilkes Booth, the assassin, had picked himself up and was running for dear life. He wasn't caught until twelve days later, when he was tracked to a barn where he was hiding. Only a few people noticed the running man, but pandemonium broke loose in the theater with everyone shouting, Lincoln shot! The president is dead! Miss Goldsboro swept me into her arms and held me close and somehow we got outside the theater. That night, I was shot 50 times, at least, in my dreams. And I sometimes still relive the horror of Lincoln's assassination, dozing in my rocker, as an old codger like me is bound to do. If you would like to see Mr. Samuel J. Seymour alive and speaking of these things himself, go to YouTube and search for his name Samuel J. Seymour. He was the last person alive in 1956 that witnessed. Mr. Lincoln's assassination. I first come upon this story randomly on YouTube and found it fascinating so I figured I would share it with you. Aside from just the incredible nature of the story overall, did anything else stand out to you? Anything that might interest us as students of human psychology and childhood and so forth? How about the fact that this experience when he was five years old continued to haunt him even as a nearly hundred year old man what sorts of insights can you draw from this from his experiences in that window of time in childhood and himself as a, a much older man what sorts of insights can you draw from that well, I will leave you to draw them for yourselves. Today's topic, reputation. In Southern and Appalachian culture, it is common for the older men to tell us, your reputation is everything, or without your reputation, you're nothing. I remember my dad expressing such pride In his work, he took it very seriously. He was a telephone man. Telephone men don't really exist anymore. The World Wide Web has turned them all into cable internet men. My dad would travel to Athens, Ohio every year, which is a college town in Ohio, just in time for all of the new students moving into dorms. They all needed landline phones hooked up, you see. Well, the cell phone come along and totally annihilated that industry. In fact, I remember when cell phones were just getting popular and his trip to, to Athens, you know, the, the, the large amount of work that he would typically get around the time that the college students were moving into their dorms uh, had tapered off to, to almost nothing even then. Uh, a lot of students were already on the cell phone bandwagon but when i was in my upper late teens while trying to figure out what i was going to do with my life my dad invited me to accompany him on his job to learn the phone man trade and i took him up on it for i think it was about 2 months um it was a summer So I was probably 16, I'm guessing, when, uh, and it was during one of my school summer breaks when this was happening. So I got up early in the morning with him every day for these two months or so, which was torturous, and I rode with him in his work truck out to the field and he tried teaching me everything about working on telephone lines, splicing, and so forth. Here's the first thing that stood out to me about my dad's job. We'd get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, thereabouts, and then drive to a cigarette-smoke-filled donut diner, where we would then sit, have breakfast, drink coffee and then just talk with his team of telephone men until about 8 a.m. sometimes later I'm not kidding you we would torturously get ourselves up before sunrise just to drive to a donut diner and sit and talk for three or four hours my dad was not a smoker But everybody else was. Also, my dad was usually paired up with my Uncle Jerry, his brother. And my Uncle Jerry was a smoker and a foul-mouthed fella, as were all the other guys. So, in this respect, it was kind of nice (laughs) uh, being exposed to, you know, the working man. And, of course, I felt out of place at first, but... Uh, Quickly, I got accustomed to the way they were and things they talked about, and I began feeling like one of the guys. Why did we get ourselves up painfully at 5 a.m. just to go to a smoke-filled diner and jaw around with a bunch of other guys? Well, we'll come back to that. After about 8 or 9 a.m., we'd go out to the work truck or the work van, and we'd drive out to the field and begin work. Usually, these jobs were in remote places and always in unbearable weather. The sun was always shining at 4 trillion degrees Fahrenheit, or it was 5 degrees below freezing, or it was raining, or whatever you can imagine. It was always rough. There are two ways to climb a telephone pole one is with a ladder, but ladders don't always go up that high. So, the other way is with climbing spikes. And this is an apparatus that you strap to your legs and boots. And they have a sharp spike jutting down from the inside part of each foot. And combined with a belt that you wrap around the telephone pole, these can be used to literally climb up telephone poles with just your feet. You jam a heel into the telephone pole. You lift yourself up then you slide the belt up the pole then you jam your other foot into the side of the telephone pole with that spike then you repeat it you lift your other foot jam it into the pole, lift yourself up, slide the belt up, jam your other foot in and so forth until you're way too far up in the air, I'll tell you a person has to have a lot of confidence in those spikes and physics in order to climb a very tall telephone pole, um, I I used them, and I got higher than I was comfortable with. But I'd see my dad took, 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 right up to the very top of a pole, and I, I could never get out of my head. Well, what if one of those spikes comes loose? I, you just go sliding <laughs> clear down that pole because you're locked in with that belt and everything. Can you imagine ending up with a face and belly full of? <sighs> splinters off that telephone pole. Uh, and the older the telephone pole, the more spike uh, holes are in the pole. So a lot of splinters kind of sticking out. And where folks have climbed, you know, telephone guys have climbed that pole. Oh boy, it's uh, you got to really push that out of your mind to be able to climb up high like that. And, you know, just be so comfortable with those those spikes later my uncle Jerry invested in a bucket truck so <laughs> I don't think he ever totally got comfortable with the idea of climbing telephone poles like Spider-Man either because uh, otherwise he wouldn't have <laughs> invested in that bucket truck splicing is something that linesmen do when they need to cut a telephone line somewhere in the middle of where it's strung between two poles so you cut a section out and then you have to insert a new section but inside a telephone line are sometimes thousands of individual wires inside that line so what telephone men have to do is they have to match all those hundreds or even thousands of different connections within that line and tie them together to do this in all sorts of weather my dad had this great big canvas tent that he would literally pitch over himself while hanging from a telephone line very high up in the air not the summer that I went with him to learn a trade but on another occasion in the middle of the winter I saw him do this and he pitched that great big canvas tent it would just hang right up off the telephone line. If you were driving by, you'd say, huh, I wonder who hung that thing up there? Not knowing that there's a man in there working with a heater. (laughs) In the wintertime, he had sources of heat that he could put up in the tent with him and all sorts of things that you'd never, ever imagine on your own if, if you didn't know somebody who was in that trade. I was fascinated by the life of telephone men. It was rough and hard, uh, somewhat creative and interesting, and somewhat free. I loved the idea of getting an assignment and just going out and taking care of that assignment by myself, you know, enjoying the outdoors, not having a supervisor hanging over my shoulder. Also, I remember we went to this one place, a small business office, and uh, we were installing a line there. And the only person there that day was the secretary. I was a teenager, and she was a 10. She was dressed a little provocatively. She was being pretty flirty. And I thought to myself, boy, this job... Would surely have some perks for a man (laughs) who was willing. Now, back to the topic of today's discussion reputation. As my dad would be working and showing me the ropes of how to splice line or run new line or uh, check signals or do repairs or work on boxes or anything in his work, he would constantly talk to me about reputation. He took extreme pride in doing his work as well as he could and he would always go the extra mile in other words he was never just content with doing the work so that it was passable no he wanted it to be done neatly and cleanly he wanted to be proud of he wanted to look at the work he had just done and be proud of it be proud of anybody coming along seeing that and knowing that he was the one who did it He imagined the men who might come after him at some point and have to do a repair, and how they'd open up a box and see his work, and he wanted them to notice how much attention and care he had given to doing the work right and with great tidiness. And I have to say, I I admire this about my dad. I like that he cared so much about his work, to do his work the best he could always, that he had put in that extra effort it's something positive that influenced me then and continues to influence me today I wish that my father if he had viewed me like a person and had considered that one day I will grow up and I'm a real person I'm not just his property I'm not just a child You know, when I say that, I'm saying it from his unhealthy perspective that a child is not a real person. I'm not just this property of his or this inanimate object, that I'm a person. And one day, I'll be looking at his work as a parent, as an adult, who understands these things much better. And then, how will his reputation hold up? My father's reasoning was that his reputation as a worker was on the line every time he did a job as a telephone man. And remember, your reputation's everything. Without a good reputation, you're nothing, right? Here's the problem. What sort of reputation did my dad have as a husband and a father? Well, I can answer that question for you. His reputation as a man, a husband, and a father was stellar. To this day, there are people who rave about what an awesome guy my dad is. When I was a kid, my friends would come to visit and my dad treated them so well that my own friends used to sing his praises to me non-stop. They almost worshipped him as like a a movie star or something. Oh, how great it must be to have your dad as your dad, they'd say. And frankly, these sorts of things used to make me so proud of my dad. After all, what boy does not want to think of his father as the greatest man alive? But what was the reality in my home? The reality is that my dad was a deeply unhappy man who was violent and abusive to his family. He would beat us. He would mentally and emotionally torture us. We always felt like we were walking on eggshells. We, we all feared him. He wasn't a reasonable person with us. He had no patience whatsoever. He was harsh and critical and controlling. Any time our individuality strayed from his own preferences, He took it as a personal affront and would lose his temper. He was overwhelmingly jealous and controlling over my mom and would go to great lengths to keep her in a state of total dependence on him because this is the only way he could experience any sense of fake security in the relationship whatsoever. So he would cut up her credit cards, rage against her anytime she wasn't home before her curfew, think about that, an adult woman being controlled this way, and so on and so forth. That curfew would change too, by the way, depending on his mood. It was a nightmare upbringing. I had a friend spend the night once. His name is Josh. And he's still Josh is still alive. I still see him sometimes. Now imagine you are Josh... In all of your life, you've seen my dad as this extremely charming and fun husband and just the greatest father of all time, who everybody adores and loves. And then you come over to my house to spend the night, and then you get to see my dad for real. That night, my dad and my mom were screaming at the top of their lungs, breaking things slamming things, shouting hateful things to each other at the top of their lungs all night long. I ain't kidding, it went on until the early morning hours. Guess what I was doing? I was sleeping. Yeah, I was sleeping because this was all normal for me, remember? I thought this was totally normal. Nothing out of the ordinary here. I remember Josh having to shake me awake and he said Brian what on earth is going on here and I saw his face in the moonlight and he was terrified he was very concerned and uh, I thought what is What is his problem and I said I said to him, what do you mean? He looked at me like I was out of my mind. This, he said, motioning to the door. What is this? What is going on? I don't feel comfortable with this. And I literally laughed at him because I thought he was just being a drama queen. Can you believe that? This sort of uh, behavior and this high-stress environment, which no child, no child, should be subject to, by my parents, this disgusting display of total emotional disorder and unhealth was such a natural occurrence and environment for me that I laughed At the person who was a reliable gauge. Of whether this was all normal or healthy. And I thought he was being a wimp. Frankly. I thought he was being a little Prius. And that reminds me of my ex-wife Diana. When I was putting her through this emotional turmoil. And she was on the verge of a. Probably a nervous breakdown. Those were the same thoughts I had. I thought. She is so weak. This is normal stuff. This is normal relationship stuff. And she can't handle it. She has been so cushioned from real life. And, oh boy. How I regret that I ever had that mentality. It was my ignorance. It was my total ignorance. I had never known emotional health she wasn't weak it's that nobody nobody should ever have to be in a situation like that at all and you know if you're raised healthy and you get thrown into a situation like that you as a healthy person know to say i'm not having any part of this i'm leaving no you're not leaving Oh I'm not leaving am I Well we'll see about that. And you do th- you know you take care of yourself. But when you've been raised like that, as a child in environments like that, you don't see anything like boundaries. You don't view people as people. you know my my ex-wife did not have the right to just walk out on me. I'm her husband, damn it and uh, and I own her. <laughs> that's that's the mentality. it's so disturbing so I laughed at Josh I thought he was being a drama queen I told him uh, I think probably verbatim I said to him what's wrong with you they're just having an argument It's, it's normal grown up stuff it's normal husband and wife stuff go to sleep and also verbatim I remember him saying to me very clearly I remember this no man this this ain't right, Brian. this ain't right. I pushed back on him and wondered what was wrong with with him. It's amazing that I thought I was the one living normal life and he was the abnormal one. This is a constant feature of emotional disorder and emotional unhealth that the person who is emotionally ill doesn't, that's one huge obstacle to overcome is that the person who he himself or herself is the sickest one in the room looks out at everybody else and thinks that she or he is the healthy one and that everybody else, everybody else has a problem, they're wimps they don't know real life they they have not been exposed to real life. But that's not that's not what is happening. What's happening is that you and me and everybody who was raised unhealthy like in unhealthy environments like that, we were never meant to be exposed to environments like that. That's not what the family unit was ever designed to be. You see. we're scarred we're broken we're hurt and we don't even know it those people out there who we look at and say oh look at those wimps and they don't know what real life is and everything <clears throat> those people are experiencing life as it's meant to be experienced that, that's the difference they're not weak it's that you are we're never meant to experience those stresses and those emotional turmoil environments to begin with, ever. People aren't meant to be in those environments. Several years ago, now the both of us in our 40s, I asked Josh if he remembered that night. Do you think he remembered it? Of course he did. It left such an impression, it was so shocking to him, that he never forgot it it was that unacceptable and unusual from his perspective he'll never forget that night but not only that I asked Josh, Josh's father if, if he remembered Josh ever mentioning that night to him and his father remembers it think about that his father wasn't even there. But all these years later, 30 years later, his father, who was not even there, did not even experience it firsthand, also remembers his son coming home and saying that. And in fact, uh, that was the last time that Josh ever spent a night at my house. He would not come back and spend the night. He'd come over, but he wouldn't spend the night. And uh, when I talked to him just a few years ago, he said that was the reason. He just did not want to be around that type of environment. Think about that. This is how outrageous and unexpected this sort of behavior by my father was to this family. It was so jarring and unexpected that they remember it still 30 years later. It was one night out of... Thousands of nights of their lives... ...and yet it made a dramatic impression. For me it was so normal... ...and so ordinary... ...that I could have slept right through it. The reason I probably remember it at all... ...is because of how it affected my friend Josh. When he woke me up... ...and I saw... ...the fright on his face... ...and how unusual I thought that was... ...it was probably the very first time in my life that I actually started doubting whether that sort of home environment was really normal or not. So now thinking about reputations, is your reputation really that important? Well ask yourself this, what if you had lived your whole life with the reputation of being a selfish, withdrawn person, but without any publicity or fanfare, you had actually saved hundreds of people's lives in your private life doing social work or or something similar. Which thing has more value? The reputation you have? Or the reality the reality of your life. I personally had the reputation of being arrogant and stuck up all through my... uh, I'll say mid-twenties to late-thirties. Everybody, and it would always get back to me somehow, a person would say, "I, I can't believe that you're so likable because I always thought... You were terribly stuck up and arrogant and full of yourself. The reason I never, this was always uh, sh- surprising to me when people would say this to me, because the reality is that I was terribly self conscious. I-, I hated myself. I was terrified that people would not like me. But, people looked at my outward appearance, my physical looks, and they thought I was very attractive. And then they looked at my natural behaviors, you know, the natural behaviors of me being self-conscious and hating myself. And the only conclusion they could arrive at was that the reason why I was behaving the way I was is that I was arrogant and stuck up ...and in love with myself. And do you know... uh, ...that my least favorite quality... ...in people... ...is arrogance... ...and haughtiness? Those are my least favorite qualities. Whenever I see a sports star... ...who's just... ...reeks of arrogance... ...being celebrated and worshipped... ...it makes me sick to my stomach... ...because I hate to see that quality rewarded so isn't it ironic that that was the reputation I had (laughs) here I am hating arrogance doing everything I can to not be to not emulate arrogant people but because of my looks because of my feelings of insecurity and self-loathing And the behaviors, the natural behaviors from that, people created the reputation for me that I was an arrogant, stuck up guy. Nothing could have been further from the truth. Think about a person who's insecure, self conscious, and hates himself. Think about how a person like that will naturally behave. And now imagine an arrogant, stuck up jerk the two behaviors are almost identical, (laughs) right? If I'm um, stoic and a person is being friendly with me and everything and I'm inside, I'm dying of nerves and I'm terrified that that they're going to see all the things about me that I don't like and they're not going to like me either. Imagine how I then communicate with that person. Very stoic, kind of... uh, um, not very talkative um, not putting myself out there too much and now think of an arrogant guy think about him in a conversation with somebody and how he'll behave, same thing right almost identical, the causes of which the causes of the behaviors, different for each person so here I had this reputation of being fool of myself and haughty while in reality, I simply hated myself, and I was afraid of everyone else hating me too. In this circumstance, of what value was my reputation? It didn't reflect a, a, any truth. There was no truth to it at all. It was a conclusion people had reached who had not bothered to get to know me at all. How about my dad? With his ferocious focus and concern about his reputation, ever the appropriate focus or thing to be worried about. What good is a reputation of being a good father, if you're really a horrible father? What good is that reputation? Which thing has more value? The reputation of being a good father? Or actually being a good father? The answer is pretty clear, isn't it? In real life, a reputation matters only as much as it reflects the truth. Only unhealthy people put more emphasis on their reputations... than they do on realities about themselves. Makes me think of politicians. They're all playing a a reputation game, aren't they? But in their personal lives, do you think that any of them match up to those reputations? I, I doubt it very much. I don't care what side of the aisle you are on. If you are looking at a politician worshiping a politician... and thinking that you know that person... and you know what's motivating them and everything... you are a, a clown. Because politicians are the very definition of this. Reputation is the most important thing in their lives. Not the reality. The reputation. That's how they get what they want. I would rather have the reputation of being a terrible father... while in reality being a great father... than the other way around... any day of the week... and I would have preferred this from my own dad as well... it's a shame... it's a terrible shame... that he did not put the same pride into being a dad... that he put into his work... as a telephone man... you know... (laughs) it's just astonishing to me that telephone men don't even exist anymore so um, he put all that effort and concern and attention into something that the world has already forgotten about but the world would never have forgotten him really being a good father I would have never forgotten about it my children would never have forgotten about it <laughs> I say children plural I've only got one that I know of wink wink Oh, there might be a few gray-eyed kids out there somewhere. Maybe a couple of them in the UK. Because I I did have a girl. I had a British girl in Philly. And she uh, gave me the idea that she might be pregnant with my child. And I did everything I could to find out about that. And she... uh, Said there was there was no baby or anything, but um, I would not be surprised. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I would not be surprised if I get a knock on my door one of these days. Knock, knock, knock. Well, hello, father. It's been such a long time. And I'd be like, what? Uh, it's possible. I mean, but then again, it's possible I get a knock on the door and ching ching chong. Oh, oh uh hello son Um, and then it's possible I get a a child that's uh, (laughs) I'm getting a little off the topic here (laughs) but let's just say that I would not be surprised if I get a knock on the door one day and somebody says hello father unless you're wondering if I'm a total jerk Uh, I, I explored every possibility where I thought I might have fathered a child I really followed up on that, I, I did what I could to make sure that if there was a, or a son or a daughter out there that, that I was there, I was involved, and uh, so far n- nothing's come of that. <laughs> Boy, you talk about veering off topic. Anyway, uh, let's go back to when I was working with my dad and he was trying to teach me the telephone man trade. Do you remember how I described him as being totally consumed with his reputation as a worker? Do you also remember how we would start each day? We would start each day by stealing three hours of the company's time, three or four hours of the company's time, by sitting around and eating breakfast, drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, chewing the fat, socializing with the other telephone men. Do you see this detail again, this attitude, on the part of my father that reputation matters more than reality? If the reality of being a great worker was really my father's primary primary concern and motivation, what would he have done in this situation? Would he have felt comfortable robbing the company of three or four hours of pay every morning? Not if actually being a great worker was his true concern. If actually being a great worker was his true concern, he would have spent the legitimate half hour he had with the guys, and then he would have said, "Well, what are my assignments for today?" And then he would have gone off and begun his work day. It don't matter if any of the other guys followed his example. That's not the point. The point is, what was my father's real interest and concern? Was it in just his reputation? Which means absolutely nothing, by the way. Or was it in the reality of his actions and his example? Yes, my father would take great care out in the field to do the work superbly. But remember what his thinking was. If somebody comes along and sees this... I want them to see an exceptional job well done. What if there was never a chance in all of his jobs that anybody would come along and see that work? Would he still go to such trouble? I don't think so. Not if if his focus was on his reputation rather than, than actually being a thing. The reason my dad could sit there and steal 3 hours of the company's time is because there was no way the company was going to find out about it. So reputation was not at stake, was it? Do you see the sick results, the sick attitude that comes from the distorted and twisted perspective that it's your reputation that is everything? your reputation is nothing. Your reputation is a farce. It's completely unrelated to anything real. And on its own, it carries absolutely no value whatsoever. The real value is in actually being the thing that we would like to have a good reputation about. Not in people acknowledging it, but in us actually being that, whether or not anybody ever acknowledges it. A majority of people might have come to conclusions about us that are entirely false, it doesn't matter, as long as the reality of who we are, we are content with. On the other hand, people might come to conclusions about us that are greatly exaggerated, in a positive sense, But if it's not real, if we're not really that great and wonderful as they're describing us, if we haven't really pulled people from burning houses and stuff like that, but they all think we did, that also is equally valueless. The real value is in us actually being the thing that we would like to have a good reputation about. Think about the effect of that perspective. That perspective motivates you to go to great lengths and put in great effort to match your idea of what you would like to be. Not in what you would like people to believe you are, but what you have to live with, with yourself. What you know is true, whether anybody else ever knows it or not it's a motivating thing it's powerful but if your primary interest is in your reputation that there's no there, the only motivating thing in that is for you to do enough that people believe something about you doesn't matter if you really are that you just your primary concern is that they believe it you see But if your primary interest is in actually being the thing that you would like to have a good reputation about, then you exert yourself to be that. It's about living in ways that we ourselves are content with and that we ourselves can be proud of. Whether anybody ever knows it or acknowledges it or not, reputation be damned. When I became a dad, I set my heart on being a great father. Not just a good father, but a great father. I make decisions all the time that people would not understand, or they would misunderstand, or misinterpret, and I don't care. My objective as a father, my primary objective, I should say, I'm not saying that wanting a good reputation is bad. I'm saying it can't be your primary focus and motivation. So my primary objective as a father has never been to be known as a good father. My primary objective has always been to actually be a great father. Because... And that person who's going to come along behind me and view my work in the future is a real person. It's my daughter. She's a real person now, just as much as she will be when she's 30. And I want to make her proud. When I include things with my daughter in last symptom stuff, there's no script, there's no acting, and there are no pretenses. I hit record, and I allow her to do her thing. I'm just as curious as you are as to what she might do or say. So when my little girl's wisdom, emotional health, maturity, and intelligence is captured in these things, that is who she really is. It's evidence that I am meeting my objective of being a great father, because the proof is in my daughter herself. Nothing matters more to me than being the best daddy she could have. Not in having the reputation of being the best daddy she could have. Because what good is that? If in reality, I I were a terrible father. Do you know how many parents are out there with their lying Facebook pages? They're totally fictional Instagram accounts... where they have picture after picture... of their smiling kids... and them, the parents, acting playful... and doing stuff together... and seemingly having this great relationship... and yet the parents themselves are total nightmares... and the kids are miserable... and don't even know it? Probably the majority... the majority... if you are somebody... Like me, who was once one of those smiling, proud, ignorant kids. Being raised by unthinkably emotionally unhealthy parents. Being abused every day and not even knowing you're being abused. And the parents living like the most important thing in life is everybody thinking they're good parents. Which is probably why they can sleep at night at all. Because they fool people into thinking they're good parents... And this is their primary importance, right? It's the thing of primary importance to them rather than actually being good parents. And now imagine that you, like me, were in that situation. You managed to escape those distorted perceptions and see the reality of these things, the true nature of these things. Then you don't walk around being fooled by them when you see them. They stand out to me like a sore thumb it should be embarrassing to people who are doing that whose primary concern is putting on an illusion of family happiness it should be embarrassing to them and hopefully that embarrassment will lead them to stop making appearances their primary concern and then what would they do Well, they'd do what they need to do to get healthy. Reputations mean nothing. They're illusions and more times than not do not come anywhere close to reflect in reality. A woman may have a reputation of being perfectly chaste and pure while she's secretly out banging all your neighbors. On the other hand, she may have the reputation of being a total slut while at the same time she's a chaste virgin in either situation what good is reputation it's meaningless and you know honestly it's not even within our control usually people come to the conclusions that they do they misinterpret they come up with their own narratives reputations are meaningless how about worrying about your reputation if people were to find out you have borderline personality disorder, or how about this: you're married to somebody with borderline personality disorder, or you're codependent. You know, if you're married to somebody with borderline personality disorder, you're most you most definitely are codependent, or you you're narcissistic. You have a narcissist. You have a, a narcissistic personality disorder, or you have borderline personality disorder. You, you, but you know whatever the case, you're emotionally unhealthy, but. What is the sense of worrying about your reputation of, you know, if people were to find out you have borderline personality disorder or that you're codependent or any other emotional disorder? Look, the whole world has known that I had borderline personality disorder for years now. Something like 300, 400, 500,000 people know that I had borderline personality disorder. They know the ugly details of that it hasn't hurt me do you think people look at me and they say oh my gosh what a terrible guy he had borderline personality disorder and and, rid, and did all the hard work to rid himself of it what a terrible guy no they don't do that you don't do that are you putting forth effort to rid yourself of your emotional disorder are you sincere in those efforts then be proud of that Would you rather have the reputation of being healthy, or would you rather be healthy? The thing you and I and all people interested in emotionally healthy living need to be concerned about more than anything else is the reality of our lives, not the reputation of our lives. If I would like the reputation of being a thing, then my focus needs to be on actually being healthy that thing not on the reputation part of it if my dad wanted to enjoy the reputation of being a good father it was his responsibility to actually be a good father, period and if he wasn't, it was his responsibility to figure out the underlying reasons why and address them, fix them But, no, he didn't do that because the reputation part was all that mattered to him. And he had that, right? He had the reputation of being a good father. So, why would he put in the extra work? You know, that's the law of minimal effort. Uh, Talk about it in the last symptom Fundamentals course. The law of minimal effort says that a person will only put in effort required to accomplish their true objective. So, if your true objective is actually to be a good father... It means you will not stop putting in effort until you are that. But if your true objective is just for people to believe you're a good father and to have that reputation, once you achieve that, you don't go on to actually be a good father. Because you've already accomplished your objective. The law of minimal effort. There are some other names that people have given that. Uh, over the years that I've got notes on but uh, that's what I call it the value is not in the reputation the value is in the reality the reality of the thing are you really that? have you really done that? are you really trying that? are you really behaving this way? are you really putting energy into this? Uh, not whether you have the reputation of, of all these things. Alright? So, um, I'll close today by telling you that I got a letter from my dad today. And those of you who have been following me for a while know that whenever I have uh, encounters with my dad, and, and ironically, I was working on this manuscript, this outline, when the letter come. I was... Uh, of the way finished with the outline I went to check the mail come back with his letter I I recognized it was from him he didn't put his name on it but I recognized the writing and uh, let me tell you the effect that that is having on me right now I'm I'm irritable I'm angry I'm frustrated my mind keeps going back to the things that uh, how to handle that that letter um course the letter did not express anything healthy at all my father has not met the conditions for us to have communication or relationship. so again he's totally ignoring my boundaries and um, so it, it's frustrating to me and at the same time um, I've told you in the past that whenever I have these encounters with him that which don't happen very often they happen maybe once every two years um, it screws with me it screws with my mind it screws with my, with my feelings for sometimes upwards to a week afterwards and so I often tell people just ahead of time listen, I, I'm dealing with some family stuff and I'm just in a foul mood I'm impatient, I'm kind of irritable uh, if I treat you impatiently or in an irritable way uh, I don't want you to take take it personally it's, it's not you, it's me it's things that I'm working out inside myself. So that's what I'm dealing with right now. And it'll be interesting to see. You know, I'm always a an observer now, like a scientist. When, with these sorts of things, I'm very conscious of what's going on inside of me. And I'm observing myself at the same time I'm dealing with it. Because I want to understand it, right? I want to understand the effect that it has on me. And I want to handle it in the most uh, practical and reasonable way possible so um, obviously I'm not going to just sit down and start busting out a letter to my dad tonight what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait about three days I'm going to let my emotions and the effect that this (laughs) extremely frustrating man uh, has on me to subside I'll spend those three days, you know, just kinda um, getting used to to the fact that this surprise letter come and the things that he's the dumb stupid things that he said in it, which he thinks are just make all the sense in the world, you know he thinks they make all the sense in the world, they don't because he he doesn't he doesn't even know what he's talking about he has no concept of anything healthy of any of these healthy notions so he has no concept of what he's talking about but I understand that from his point of view he's trying to be reconciliatory and and those sorts of things and he thinks he's saying all the right things so I need to allow just maybe like three or even four days maybe even a whole week to just let this settle so that I'm not writing a letter or making decisions uh, based purely on my emotions I don't want to give my emotions control over me you see so I can't make decisions or respond to anything like that while my emotions are in an excited state like that I have to allow them to subside come to terms with the letter be reasonable, you know, spend the next few days trying to be reasonable about the whole thing. And then once I'm calm, I'm perfectly calm. it's not affecting me like an electric shock anymore. And I'm perfectly calm. That's the time for me to decide. Should I write a reply letter? What will that reply? What should that reply letter include? How should I word it? and things of that nature. So I wanted to share that with you. Um, because it's it's a real example of things we talk about all the time I know that a lot of you folks are you know you're you're wondering how I handle these sorts of things because you want to know how you can best handle these sorts of things well I'm telling you that's the way you, you never make decisions or take action while your feelings are um, in that state because you're begging then for your feelings to take the steering wheel and just take control over what you end up saying, what you end up doing, and those sorts of things. The healthy way to handle it is to allow time for your emotions to to uh, calm so that you're perfectly clear headed and then you can make decisions, not your feelings so I hope that you find that helpful and again well, I was planning on a 30 minute show today <laughs> didn't quite achieve it but um, like I said it depends on the the topic there will be topics that will fit nice and compactly in a 30 minute show folks you have a wonderful weekend I love talking to you I, lo- I hope that uh, you enjoy the information in today's show and um, I'll see you or talk to you again real soon hey join us over there on locals thelastsymptom.locals.com that's my premier social media uh, platform where the last symptom community exists currently and we would love to have you over there thelastsymptom.locals l-o-c-a-l-s dot I put content on there every day uh, and it's uh, content like this stuff that can benefit you Another way that you can join us is just by downloading the locals.com app from the App Store and then searching for the last symptom. Well, that's it for me. You guys have a wonderful weekend. Do something nice for yourselves. All right. All right.